if this idea survives the acid test of experiments and we realize that we've been wrong about space and time and physical objects, I think most scientists will be delighted in the same sense that we're delighted to discover that the Earth isn't flat and that it's not the center of the universe. I mean, at one point, those were very, very scary propositions. takes a cigarette, puts it in your mouth, you pull on your finger, then another finger, then cigarette. Let's face it, the question of what is reality is the stuff of movies. It's the stuff of sci-fi. Because if your friend cornered you and pressed you on it, you'd probably just want to slap him. Mostly because of just how frustrating it can be to rip and replace your entire perception of what is real. That said, it is the sort of insanely big question that the very smartest and most ambitious people have asked through generations. In fact, just last month, Elon Musk took the stage and made the argument that we're all probably characters in some advanced civilization's video game. It might not surprise you to know that there's actual science focused on trying to crack this huge question. And today's guest, Donald Hoffman, has not only been researching it, he's had some recent breakthroughs that could change absolutely everything that we perceive about reality. Don is a professor of cognitive science at the University of California, Irvine, and he makes a very compelling case supported by lots of research and testing that the entire perception that we have for reality is nothing like what it is. This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. <laughs> Honestly, are you the guy that everyone wants to take with them when they're on mushrooms out camping? <laughs> yes, or when they're <laughs> meditating or, or so forth. Yeah, the, the ideas seem to be quite um, uh, complementary to a lot of people's uh, either, you know, religious beliefs or their, their drug experiences. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. I mean, just trying to get ready to have our conversation was tricky because I was like, man, we're going to talk about reality. And I just instantly went back to my college days of having someone do that whole, the universe could be in someone's fingernail, which, yes. which it's hard. It's hard to have this conversation because you start just challenging everyone's storytelling in their brain and it gets pretty hard to ice pick the calcification of all the stuff that we believe. So do you find just even having the conversation outside of universities and so forth, but when you're just like out in the gen pop having this conversation, is it just incredibly challenging to unpack it for folks? It's very challenging because it's going against very, very deeply held assumptions that uh, we don't even know we're assuming. We, we just assume that of course, reality is as we see it. And for someone to, to claim otherwise just seems completely absurd. So, so in many cases, people that I talk with simply have no idea what I'm saying because they, they know I couldn't possibly be meaning that. So they must be saying something else. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's kind of our little camouflage mechanism to stay safe because that's a little threatening to say that the banana right there is not a banana right there. Yeah, exactly. That it's 
just my way of getting through the day. It's a symbol I use to do what I need to do um, and nothing more. And that's very, very, you know, for a lot of people, all of a sudden they feel naked. Yeah. Naked against reality that they can't see and they feel vulnerable and so forth. And I certainly understand that. So it's it's very difficult. This is not, this goes from abstract intellectual exercise to something very personal and emotional. Yeah, I, I definitely had that reaction when I watched your TED talk. Let's start with like, okay, when we say reality, is it reality like there's a banana right there reality, like objective reality? Or when we're talking, when we're having this conversation about reality, what's the description that people should have in their head? Yeah, so the question we're asking is, you know, do we see reality as it is? And, and to even ask that question, we have to at least countenance the possibility that whatever exists when we're not looking, and even after we die, um, might not be anything like anything that we're perceiving right now, space and time and physical objects. That, that's what the question is really asking us to at least countenance that possibility. And so we, we assume that, you know, we look around the world and we see three dimensions of space, we, we experience time, we see rocks and bananas and trees and the moon, and, and we just assume that, um, of course, that's not all of reality, but it's certainly, you know, if I close my eyes or die, the, the, the moon will still be there and other people can see it. Um, so the question that, that we're really asking is, could we be wrong about that? And, and, and also, is that even a scientific question? I mean, is it possible to frame the, the question scientifically? Do our perceptions show us reality as it is, or are they simply a, a species-specific hack that keep us alive? So it's, it's asking a very, very hard question, one that's hard for, for a lot of us to even think is a legitimate question, but could I be wrong about something I deeply believe, even about the existence of space and time and the sun and the moon? And, and you know, we, it's, if you say, no, that's not even a scientific question, that's, that puts us in a tough position because, uh, you know, we assume in many cases in science that the sun is there when we don't look. So is that assumption not scientific? If we're not allowed to question it, then, in fact, we're stepping outside of science. So the, the goal of science is to, you know, question everything um, as much as possible. And so I'm questioning some of the very, you know, foundations of uh, you know, the physicalist ontology that underlies much of our science. And why is that valuable? Why is it important to understand that the reality that's out there, the ingredients that make it up or the truth outside of the human experience or our view into it is different. So can't we just all keep going along the way we are? Like what impact would it make if we did have a way of understanding that reality was extremely different than what we have? Well, there's a, a couple impacts. First, there's just, you know, the personal impact that um, if I'm that deeply deceived about what I thought was reality, I would like to know it. Just, you know, that, that's remarkable information. I would hate to have gone my entire life um, believing something very, very deeply wrong. So it, just on a personal level, if it's actually the case that we don't see reality as it is, I would like to know that. But on a practical level, um, one of the concrete scientific problems that I've been interested in that really forced me to look at this question carefully 
is the question of human consciousness and, and consciousness more general. Um, how are our conscious experiences of you know the smell of garlic or the, the taste of an onion um, or the sound of a trumpet? How are these conscious experiences related to the activity in our brains? Now, we know that there are dozens, perhaps hundreds of very, very well-documented correlations between brain activity on the one hand and our conscious experiences on the other. And the scientific challenge is to try to understand the nature of those correlations. Does brain activity cause our conscious experiences or what, what's going on? And most scientists, uh, myself included, have tried to come up with scientific theories that show how brain activity somehow causes or gives rise to or is identical to our conscious experiences. Um, and we've utterly failed. Uh, we have no scientific theories that can say, for example, that um, this is the mathematical reason why this kind of brain activity has to be the taste of chocolate. And if you make this particular change in the brain activity, then my theory predicts that now you will you know, smell garlic. Um, and you couldn't possibly have had to be the, you know, the sound of a trumpet. There are, there are no theories that even attempt to do that. So, and and the, even worse, we have no plausible ideas about how to address this problem if we assume that brain activity somehow causes um, or is or gives rise to our conscious experiences. And so it was this utter failure, not only to have a scientific theory, but even to imagine a plausible direction to get a scientific theory that made me step back and say, uh, okay, what are we assuming that is false, that, that's blocking us? And so I began to look at the, the assumption that uh, we see reality as it is, partly because that's my field. I've been studying visual perception um, for, for 35 years. So I, I decided to go where I, where I have some background to check my own assumptions about my own field. Isn't it a little bit kind of, I don't know, I'll call it conceited, but I was talking to a primatologist who, Franz de Waal, who has done a bunch of tests on the intelligence of animals, you know, and his major point is most of the tests that we can come up with as talking apes and homo sapiens are completely, they're human centric. So we keep yes. taking this frame and sticking it around animals and saying, do you fit in this box? And so is there a way even for humans to put a box around this and come up with an answer? Or is it the same kind of problem where we can actually never do that because we're just going to all keep using a human frame? That is a serious problem that we've got. We have evolved our perceptions and our your cognitive abilities from you know evolution by natural selection. And the selection pressures were to keep us alive not to tell us the truth, uh, give us insights into the reality that might be around us. And so, you know, we don't expect, for example, that uh, monkeys can understand quantum mechanics or cockroaches can understand Newtonian mechanics. And the reason is quite clear. Of course, they didn't evolve to learn those kinds of things. They evolved to with perceptions and conceptions that allowed them to stay alive. And Homo sapiens is just another species. We've evolved with a set of perceptions and you know ideas and you know concepts that um, were shaped with with one purpose to you know to keep us alive. Where I'm using purpose in quotes, uh, and it's an open question 
whether the concepts we have uh, are adequate to understand the nature of reality as it is. Also, whether the concepts we have are, are adequate to understand the, the worlds of other animals. You know, to, and so far, we've not been very successful at understanding even the language of dolphins. You know, species that we've been living with for a long time uh, are still quite a bit of a mystery to us. Um, what is the world of an ant really like? What's really going on there? It's taken a, what few insights we've gotten into the, the worlds of other animals um, have been hard won um, with, with lots of hard science behind them. Uh, so it's, and, and who knows what we've left out so far. So it's, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. We, we tend to think of animals um, in our own human-centric terms, um, and it, it may be that we don't have the concepts needed to understand them on their own terms. So when we think about reality and the evolution that you mentioned, how does the Darwinian, I guess, evolution of fitness play into uh, vision and our perception of reality? Well, so the, the name of the game in evolution is that any genetic strategy, you know, any strategy coded for by your genes that makes it more likely that you will reproduce and have offspring that are successful, you know, in the sense of staying alive long enough to reproduce, those genes and the perceptual capacities and cognitive capacities that those genes code for will then be more likely to, you know, exist in the next generation to, to be perpetuated. And that's it. In other words, genes that code for perceptual systems that let you have more kids, that let you succeed in having offspring, that is the one selection pressure that, uh, that it brings to bear on the perceptions we're going to have. Same thing with our cognitive capacities. We, we have those cognitive capacities that allowed the genes that coded for those cognitive capacities to be, be more successful in being passed to the next generation. In evolution, that's the only standard of success. Those genes get to the next generation. So that, that is the only game in town with, with evolution by natural selection. And so the question then technically is, if it's all about genes getting a ticket to the next generation, then what is the chance that that process will also happen to code for perceptions and cognitions that are true to the world around us, that are actually telling us the truth about the, the objective world that would exist even if we weren't here. And that was the technical question that, that I've been addressing for the last uh, eight to 10 years. And the answer is quite clear mathematically from evolutionary game theory. Um, I, I did Monte Carlo simulations that I, I mentioned in my TED talk, um, but in the years since my TED talk, I've been working with a mathematician and we've now proven a theorem. I, well, I conjectured it, he proved it. And the theorem basically um, says that the probability um, is zero or goes to zero um, as the world and the perceptions get complex, uh, that any of our perceptions um, present reality as it is. So what, what that theorem is saying is uh, if you buy evolution by natural selection, then the chance that any of our perceptions, including space and time and physical objects, colors, textures, motions, smells, tastes, and so forth, that any of these are reporting reality as it would be even if we weren't here, 
the chance of that is um, minuscule and goes exactly to zero um, as the complexity of our perceptions in the world increases. Okay, so that's like the, oh, fuck, the rug's been pulled out from underneath your feet kind of yeah. version, it, right? So it, you're like, okay, it, none of this is real. So then, of course, your brain wants to go, okay, you just created a cavity, and I'm going to need you to fill that cavity with something because if this isn't real, and if the feedback that I'm getting when I'm looking at the snake mm-hmm. is that it's not actually I don't know what it is actually in the case that you're explaining there, but I need some kind of other story to fill in there as a story talking ape. So what are we supposed to do? That's right. So that's, that's the tough question. If we're not seeing reality as it is, you mean, I mean, how shall we understand our perceptions? What good are they? How could they be uh, you know, useful to us if they're not, if they're not true and how shall we think about our perceptions? And so I have a metaphor that I think, is a very helpful metaphor to understand what I think is really going on with perception. And it's the, the desktop uh, Windows interface on your, on your laptop or your mobile device. And so suppose that you're, you know, you're going to write an email, you're writing an email to a friend, and the icon for the, the email that you're writing is uh, blue and rectangular and in the middle of your, your, your screen on your computer. Does that mean that the email itself in your computer is blue and rectangular in the middle of the computer? Well, of, of course not. Anybody who, who thought that really just misunderstands uh, what a computer is and what the desktop interface is all about. Um, the, the email in the computer itself is not blue. It, it, you know, in fact, it doesn't have a color at all. It doesn't have a rectangular shape. In fact, it's hard to describe it as having any shape at all. And, you know, it certainly isn't in the middle of the computer. And those are the only predicates or the only language that the desktop offers you. It offers you shapes with colors and positions on your screen. That's what it gives you. And none of those, none of that language is the right language to describe the truth of what's happening inside the computer. And yet, and yet, the desktop interface is exceedingly useful. It allows you to write your email it allows you to copy it, to send it, to, to delete it if you wish. Um, and part of the reason why the desktop interface is useful is precisely because it hides the truth. It hides the reality of the computer. If you had to see the diodes and the resistors, if you had to you know, manipulate the voltages and magnetic fields inside your computer to write that email, well, your friend would never hear from you. You would never get it done. So. It's, in fact, a huge help not to see reality as it is. And in the case of this, you know, the interface, the desktop interface metaphor, um, you can be entirely ignorant of all of the workings of your computer. You, you can have no idea about magnetic fields and voltages and, and be just fine. That's the power of a good interface. It allows a user with complete ignorance about objective reality to, to get along just fine, thank you. So that's what I think evolution has done for us. We have a species-specific desktop interface that, that we've evolved. Space, you know, three-dimensional space, as you perceive it, and time, is just your desktop. And physical objects like bananas and rocks, the sun and the moon, are simply icons on your desktop. And we've evolved this interface 
not to show us the truth. There were no selection pressures for us to see the truth. In fact, the selection pressures were to hide the truth. So this, we've evolved this interface uh, of space-time and objects to hide reality because we don't need to know it. And simply, it's there to guide our adaptive behavior. It's there to keep us alive long enough to have kids. Does that mean that there's like a hub and spoke orientation for living creatures on the planet, each of which has their own user interface to reality where behind the scenes, so like let's say an ant uses iOS and <laughs> right, right. and uh, we're using Windows. I don't know why you picked Windows for us, but we can get into that conversation some other <laughs> some other time. And the Aardvark has you know a pager or something, but they're all behind the scenes connected to the same hub of reality being some complex and too hard to digest and understand core of reality. Or are you saying that each one of those, the Aardvark and the ant and the human, have a user interface that points to a reality for them, but it's not shared among, there's not a core among everything. Well, I first agree that there are going to be different interfaces for different species. We have evolved into different niches um, with different adaptive strategies. And so what we see in terms of our perceptual experiences and, and the cognitive structures that we have will be very, very different. Even uh, you know, among humans, the, some of the cognitive structures and uh, habits of men and women are, are notably different because we have different roles within our, within our species. But, but surely it's going to be far bigger between us and ants and us and, and other, other animals. So every species has its own species-specific interface. Now, the question of um, do we all interface into some a big objective reality, but just see differently. Um, that's that's a, a separate question. My, my, my working assumption is right now that there is, I'm, I'm assuming that there's one objective reality, but my, my theory that I used to believe, that almost everybody believes, that, that, that reality is a space, time reality with matter and you know, energy and you know, objects that are moving around with light and electromagnetism and so forth, that that's not the nature of reality. So, I mean, at this point, I'm ignorant about the nature of reality, but I'm a, I don't want to be what's called a solipsist. A, a solipsist <laughs> is someone who claims that, a, a metaphysical solipsist is someone who claims that the only thing that exists is me and my perceptions. Um, you're just a figment of my imagination, and there's nothing behind the screen. So when I look at you I, and I see a face, there's nothing else there be, except for the face that I see. There's no consciousness behind that face, for example. And, and you know, it's, solipsism can't be disproven, but I, I think it's not a very um, useful scientific hypothesis. So, so I don't want to go there. I want to um, assume that there is an objective reality, and I want to admit that, you know, I used to believe things about it that are probably false, namely that it's a space-time reality with physical objects. And now I just need to take it as a scientific enterprise to propose new mathematically precise theories about what that reality might be and then try to make scientific you know, experiments to test that. So, so I still want to do this, the normal scientific enterprise of you know, build, building theories about the nature of reality and testing them. It's just that 
what I've discovered is that if you buy the theory of evolution by natural selection, then the chance that the theory we all love and believe, namely that space-time and physical objects is the nature of objective reality, that theory is provably false. So you either have to let go of evolution by natural selection, or you have to let go, or if you don't let go of evolution by natural selection, then you have to let go of space and time and physical objects being the ultimate nature of reality. It's not an easy choice, but, but I can't imagine any real scientist wanting to let go of evolution by natural selection. So I think the choice forced on us is to say, okay, we need to rethink deeply um, what we want to claim about the nature of objective reality. You said you spent time looking at vision for a really long time. So I'm curious how much vision kind of fucks up reality for us, because I'm wondering if you're, if you're, if you're sightless, like if you're blind and you are a seeing person, then how we would describe reality would be pretty different, right? Yes. So is there a way of even testing or describing realities within our species in such a dramatic way that to try to unearth some of this? In, in the sense of looking at how realities might differ from person to person or? Yeah, and especially in cases where the input interface that, that you mentioned mm -hmm. is obviously different. Yes. Uh, well, actually, I, I, I do agree with what you said before that somehow it's the fact that we're very visual and that we um, are very impressed with the richness of our visual perceptions and how important it is to take our per visual perceptions seriously. You know, if you see a cliff, don't step off. If you see a snake, don't touch it. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are you know, very, very, that it's very easy for us to go from the richness and the importance of our visual perceptions to assuming that therefore they're true. Now that, that is, that is not a logically valid step that we take, but it seems psychologically quite compelling. Um, but to the other point, yes, there are differences from individual to individual in the interface that um, are, are quite surprising. So in the case of color, um, among color normal men, roughly... What's a color normal man? So these are, these are men who um, would... If you took uh, you know took them into a psych lab and gave them a color test, the 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 color psychologist would say, yeah, you're 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 you've got normal color vision. You're not, for example, colorblind or something. Oh, I like see. That. Okay, green is green. Green is green, and they, and they give the right range of responses to you know the the color tests. Um, it turns out that color normal men, in that technical sense, um, there's actually two different groups of us. Two thirds of men have well, there's this this gene that codes for the red photoreceptor pigment in the eye. And that gene, there are two alleles of that gene in the, in the normal population. And uh, roughly a third of men have one allele and two thirds have the other allele. And, and the genes only differ by one letter. It's just a one letter difference. And that makes only a one amino acid difference in the, you know, the, the photopigment, but it makes that little difference makes a big difference in the light sensitivity of that photopigment in the eye. It shifts it by little over four nanometers, which doesn't sound like a lot, but, but it turns out that is a lot. And when you actually take these two groups of men, 
draw you know blood or do some kind of test to find out which which group they're in, with you know the the one third group or the two thirds group. You know, it's an alanine versus serine amino acid. So are they an alanine guy or a serine guy in color perception? So you first find them genetically, then you do careful color tests and you find out that they make different color matches in the red, yellow, orange end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So what this tells us is that the the red, orange, yellow part of the color world for two-thirds of men is different for the other one-third. And you would never know it, but they actually live. So our already, you know, evolution is constantly changing. The interface is evolving. We have mutations all the time. So when I talk about, you know, the interface of humans, of course, that's a shorthand for um, there's a lot of interfaces. We're all roughly the same, but evolution is continuing. We're continuing to mutate. My interface is a little bit different from yours, and um, there, all these interfaces are in competition to be the, the next best version. So if I look at a plant and I look at it with a third-person God's-eye view of a plant, I'm going to just look at it as the ingredients, scientific ingredients. So I don't know what that, by the way, are. It'd be like I don't know, some, some chemical compound, some kind of chemical ingredient list. And that says, okay, based on those chromosomes and, and all the other stuff that we've got, that is a plant. Obviously, having that information allows us to do stuff with plants that we couldn't do before. Right. So is there a future that you see where we could figure out the objective ingredients to objects in reality and then have a similar kind of effect on reality? Yes, I think that um, if we, we, we've assumed that space and time and and you know, particles in space and time is the ultimate nature of reality. Um, and that's gotten us quite far in science. It's been you know, quite a ride. But already, many scientists, many physicists are realizing that uh, we have to let go of space and time. It, it was a very, very useful vehicle for scientific theory building for, for many centuries. Um, but now, uh, one of the things that you hear among scientists, like from Nima, Harkani Hamed at, at Harvard and, and others is that space-time is doomed. We've got to let go of space-time. It's not, it's not fundamental, and therefore nothing inside of space and time is fundamental. That includes all physical particles, the electrons, protons, and neutrons. They reside in space and time, or to the extent that they reside in space and time, and we have to give up space and time, then we're giving up those particles as, as parts of the ultimate nature of objective reality. And the physicists are doing this in part because they're discovering that there are deeper symmetries in nature that cannot be expressed, that cannot be exhibited in space and time. And it's these deeper symmetries that are giving us deeper insights into the ultimate nature of reality. Although at this, at this point in, in the evolution of physics, what we, we're at the position where we are recognizing that space and time aren't fundamental Something else with deeper symmetries is, but we don't know what that's pointing to yet, which is fun. I mean, for, for me as a scientist, the, I mean, this is great, great fun. It's the, it's the fun of exploration, right? <laughs> yeah. We're on these vast, this vast ocean, and uh, we're, we're seeing new islands out in the distance that we'd never known were there. Do you just piss the other scientists off, though? Because you're kind of, if you're describing reality as an illusion and space-time as not really the framework for things and then all of a sudden 
all of this other work that's been done. It's kind of like when you were a kid and you did all this homework and then you like turn it in and you realize you, you know, you didn't really follow it and you have to go back and do it all again and you get all pissed off at your teacher. So does, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, are there just like a ton of scientists out there that this is just pissing them off? Well, science is a very conservative enterprise in many respects and, and it should be, Uh, you know, the, the statement that I'm making, the claim that I'm making is, you know, quite radical. And so it's appropriate for, for scientists to, um, to not want their research all screwed up. (laughs) Well, yeah, to, to, to very, to, to try to put it through its paces, to try to poke holes and to try to find out what's wrong with it. So I, I'm all for that. But my think, my feeling is, and I think most scientists would agree that if this idea survives the acid test of you know experiments and and you know all all the probes that scientists will naturally want to do it if it survives and we realize that we've been wrong about space and time and physical objects i think most scientists will be delighted um, in the same sense that we're delighted to discover that the earth isn't flat and that it's not the center of the universe i mean that's at one point those were very very scary propositions we we knew that the earth was flat anybody could see it was flat and we knew that the earth doesn't move because you could see the Earth doesn't move, except in California when there's earthquakes. But, mm-hmm. but, but so we believed all this stuff. But it was for the for the real scientist um, a fun breakthrough to recognize that something that we deeply believed was deeply false. So, do you see a future here where we're having to revisit a lot of the science that has been developed over the last I don't know how long has science been developing for four hundred years, five hundred years, something like that. Is it longer? I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, you might put it to, you know, the start with with Galileo, although some people would say that there were some, um, you know, incl- you know, some science could be go go back to the Greeks, Aristotle. Oh, okay. So, so but, yeah, but we're back down to that. modern science to Galileo, I would say, and then certainly with Newton. By, with Newton, we're really on the track. <laughs> so a lot of that work has to, to, to get done. Is that So that's what you're seeing in the future is potentially we're, we're going back and having to reshape some of the assumptions that we have. That's right. If, if, if we actually have to let go of space and time as part of the ultimate nature of objective reality, then we're going to have to go back and rewrite a lot of what we think we know. Uh, and that's going to be a, a fun, fun proposition. There are some who are saying, well, we'll we, the rewriting needs to take place in the language of information theory, for example. Um, so that's that's one direction that's that's going on. And, and there are people in quantum information theory who are proposing that that um, might be the new foundation for our, our theory of objective reality. Um, so Seth Lloyd at, uh, at MIT, um, Chris Fuchs um, at Boston University are, are are in that in that direction, and I think they might be onto something. Um, so it would be something that seems intangible to us, like in information, as opposed to something that seems real to us, like space and time and physical objects. But the this apparently intangible thing might be more close to the nature of objective reality than what we thought was the tangible reality. What does this mean for creating artificial intelligence if the reality that we are perceiving is so dependent on our own interface? Then when we go to create something like machine learning and artificial reality, doesn't that somehow not translate exactly? Well, the interesting thing about recent work in artificial intelligence, and I, I have some background. I, I, I was in the... Um, 
artificial intelligence laboratory at MIT for my for my PhD research, and and that what's happened is a, a, a growth or a, you know breakthrough in what's called deep learning machine algorithms for for artificial intelligence, and what this opens up is the possibility that machines that we've programmed can start to learn and think in ways that we never could. They can evolve just like we've evolved. They can evolve their own new concepts that we have no access to. They can evolve perceptual systems, ways of reasoning, ways of thinking, ways of perceiving, ways of conceptualizing that, that no human could possibly grasp. So once we set these things in motion, um, where they go is just as open as where the next virus might go or the next bacteria might go. We can't control where they're going to go. <laughs> you know, every once in a while an Ebola comes along and we have to deal with it or, you know, our Zika virus. And that's going to be the same thing, I, I believe, with, with artificial intelligences. Um, they, there's no reason for them at all to be restrained by the limits of human understanding, human perception, or human cognition. They will evolve on their own in directions that uh, very quickly we won't understand. Could they put it in a human language to help us understand what reality is closer to? In other words, could that be the bridge of describing if we used AI somehow to help us better get out of our own <laughs> trap? Quite, quite possibly. Um, if it's the case that we have the concepts that are necessary to understand reality, but we just haven't used them properly, then the AIs could actually help us bridge that gap. But if the fact is that we've not evolved the right concepts, then the AIs could talk to us as much as they wanted. That wouldn't help. What we really need is not a talking to, we need a mutation. And that mutation would then endow us with the concepts that were needed. I mean, I could talk to an ant as much as I wanted to about quantum mechanics, uh, and I could be the best lecturer in the world and, and the, the, the best expositor, but I doubt the ant will get it. Yeah, stupid ants. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I presume that also means that when we look for answers using science, for example, I want to find life in the universe beyond this planet. Yes. So I want to look out into space and I want to identify something that fits into the life category. But because I have a extremely limited and skewed perspective of reality, then I'm probably missing a huge amount of information that in our language would mean that there's actually life, but I can't see it because I'm, I'm a human being with this operating system, this interface. I think that's absolutely a possibility. I mean, I'm, I'm of course not in the position to prove that that's the case, but I think that it's any scientist should soberly accept the possibility that the limits of our perceptions and conceptual systems um, have precluded us from, from grasping life where it, it, it is, but we just can't see it or can't understand it. We might be in the position that uh, you know ants sometimes seem to be, if I'm going uh, to a colony of ants with a can of raid and they, they're completely oblivious to, to my existence about, and about what's about to happen to them. Um, you know, are, are we in the same position as the ants with respect to other lives? Who knows? When you're walking around, 
in your life. So outside of the work that you're doing or this interview that you're doing, and you're just walking around and you're looking at reality and you're thinking about it, I mean, because you're studying it so deeply, then what's it like for you? Because I'm wondering if it starts causing questions of what's meaningful. And when you strip down all of the fictional layers and then you start to strip down all the objective layers, how does, when you're looking around after doing all the work you're doing, you know, how does that, what kind of questions does it really pop in your head as far as a human experience? Well, it's, it, it is, you know, psychologically quite shaking to, to no longer take my perceptions as just, you know, a mirror of reality and to, it's very, very difficult to admit that I don't know what reality is, um, that what I deeply believed is almost surely false. So it's, it's, it, it is, it, it's a crushing blow in a way. It's, it, and it does raise questions about, you know, uh, what I think about myself is probably no more true than what I thought was true about the universe. How, so how deceived am I about who I am and what I am? What is the nature of, of, of human existence? What is, how much about my own self am I also assuming that that's false? And, and so I could be deeply deceived not only about the nature of objective reality, but about the nature of who I am and, and my own motivations and so forth. And, and, and in fact, you know, work in evolutionary psychology by Robert Trivers and others uh, suggests that there are strong selection pressures for us to be deeply deceived, for us to have false beliefs about ourselves, our motives, and why we're doing what we're doing. Um, so this is, this is different than... Um, what I've, I've been working on, I've been just showing that there was no selection pressures for us to see the truth. What Trivers has been showing, at least in our self-perception, is that there's strong selection pressures uh, explicitly to deceive us about ourselves. So this, this uh, opens up a completely different way of thinking about myself, my beliefs about myself, my interactions with the world. It's, it's, um, you know, it's uh, on the one hand, um, scary, because it is scary to have deeply held beliefs shaken to their core. On the other hand, I also find it quite exciting. I mean, the only way to make discoveries is to let go of false beliefs. Do you ever spend time taking your work? Because it sounds like you've really crossed a few different things. You know, AI, you've done a lot of work in visual cognition. Yeah. Is it neuroscience too? Yes. So mm -hmm. do you ever take this and plop it down into another field that has to do with your brain receptors. I know that like one of them might be the Descartian philosophical view of reality versus the scientific. I shouldn't say that because there's probably a lot of philosophical people that out there that would be like, this, that's science too. Okay. So I just mean crossing disciplines. Have you ever spent time doing that to see, are there interesting ideas or descriptions that live outside of the fields that you've been in, but also really focus on the human brain. Well, I, I also have a joint appointment in the philosophy department here at UC Irvine. Mm -hmm. And I, I do, and I've actually team taught with professors of philosophy on perception and reality and quantum mechanics, for example. And, mm -hmm. and so I am trying to explore ideas in, in philosophy about, you know, um, various kinds of what they, they call you know, type and token physicalism, functionalism. And so we're trying, I, I do try to understand also dualism and, and idealism. 
try to understand what the philosophers have said about the problem of perception and reality, um, and then try to, to work on how that integrates with what the new scientific discoveries about it from evolution are, are telling us and see if I can't come to uh, a, a deeper understanding that, that's, that's both philosophically satisfying as well as scientifically um, well established. Mm-hmm. By the way, the, there's a, a lot of neuroscientists who are doing exactly this as well. Fra- Francis Crick, the, the last few decades of his life, was focused on the problem of consciousness and its relationship to neural activity, um, and he, he he came here to UC Irvine every month. We would there was a small group of us that would meet um, uh, w- with Francis, trying to understand the relationship p- between our conscious experiences and brain activity, and trying to get a scientific theory that was also philosophically um, you know sophisticated. So so there's a lot of scientists who are who are working on this actually. Well, Don, I'm not sure that I'll be ever smart enough to grok all of it, but I can tell you that I love thinking about this, and I think it's in super important work, and I can't thank you enough for sharing it here on Grobig Always. What should people do to find out a little bit more? I know there's your TED Talk. Where, yes. other, where else can they go? What else should they consume? Um, yeah, the TED Talk would be an, an easy way to get some of these ideas. Uh, I have on my website... Uh, all of my papers on this are, are available for free. So I've got them all listed on my website and, and with free links. And I have a bunch of other talks as well that I've given at conferences um, where I discuss this. And, and you can see scientists you know, re- replying to me and seeing the debates that, that, that come out of this. So some of those are online with, with links to free sources. Um, I, in terms of books that people might read, um, on, on just visual perception, I've got a book called Visual Intelligence, How We Create What We See. So it does describe, you know, not just abstractly that we create what we see, I actually show you in detail how you are actually constructing your world. Uh, and um, so that, that might be fun for, for readers, as, uh, for, for the viewers as well. Well, I'm going to have to reconstruct my brain after this conversation because it's pretty much in pieces all over the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Don. Really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much, Sam. My pleasure. Big thank you to Don Hoffman for blowing our minds. Speaking of blowing your mind, our email newsletter, how's that for a segue, will blow your mind. Not just because, yes, it's an email that gets delivered directly into your inbox every single week, but if you sign up, you get a reality that nobody else gets, which is an insight to the upcoming guests. And why do you want that? Well, because you can actually just jot a note to me on what you'd like me to ask them, or even better, record your own voice asking and send it to me so that I can play it for them and they can answer you, and you have a shot of it being on the show. Regardless, I wanted to thank all of you guys for listening, supporting the show, sharing it on social media, and for growing big. Until next time.